0: Good afternoon. My name is Linda Smith Rhodes, and I am the editor of the New England Quarterly. Here with me are Stephen Whitfield, Max Richter Professor of American Civilization at Brandeis University, and Louis Menand, Ann T., and Robert M. Bass Professor of English at Harvard. Both Steve and Luke have written extensively on U.S. cultural history, and today they will be talking about J.D. Salinger and 1950s era America. Their starting point will be Steve's ever-popular, cherished, and cursed toward a social history of the catcher in the rye from the archives of the New England Quarterly. Luke, one of NEQ's editors and himself an NEQ author, has kindly agreed to interview Steve. I invite you to listen in on their conversation.
1: Steve, nice to see you. Good seeing you. Um, This seems like a great occasion to talk about your article in New England Quarterly about Catcher in the Rye, because of the recent death of J.D. Salinger. So I wondered if you had reactions to the press coverage and the general response to Salinger's death. Anything surprise you about it or strike you about it?
0: I guess what was surprising, in a way, is that he was both a presence and an absence for so long. That is, the obituary notices would have been largely unchanged, I think, had he died in the mid to late 60s. The eerie, weird, odd thing, of course, about Salinger is the degree to which he had a a second life, a life, of course, in Cornish, New Hampshire, that was completely independent of any of the trends that went on in the culture, so far as I can understand. And it's hard for me to imagine another career, at least in the mid-20th century, in the era of publicity and, and celebrity and book tours and book chats, it's hard for me to imagine a, a literary life, with the obvious exception, of course, of Thomas Pynchon, that will ever be like that. And yet Salinger, in a way unlike Pynchon, um, is somebody who we feel, we feel we know as an author in some way. I know I'm now quoting from Holden Caulfield himself. But the sense, in other words, in which there's something about um, both the life and, in effect, the afterlife that is unsettling and a kind of displacement um, in which he could have died, um, except for uh, the, the care and concern of his loved ones. In cultural terms, he could have died four centuries ago. And I, I just can't think, Luke, of any other literary career of the from the mid-20th century on that could remotely approximate that.
1: Yeah, it is unusual. I mean, you mentioned Pynchon, who does come to mind as one of these recluse authors, but Pynchon keeps publishing, uh, yes. and Salinger did not. Were you surprised that there was a little bit of a backlash by the time of his death over his sort of, what felt like a rather willful hermitage that he undertook. That is, people felt that he was, he was overplaying the part of the, of the disaffected <laughs> author. Um, or did it seem natural that most of the outpouring would be positive yes. about his yeah. writing?
0: I got that sense that the, the reaction was one of both gratitude for the legacy he left behind of those four books, Um, I didn't sense myself any backlash of resentment from those who expected him to be on talk shows all the time. I guess I was more struck by the degree to which there was an, an element of, if not reverence, at least a certain element of respect for the privacy that he maintained. And let's call it the dignity and the integrity of that. Now, there were certainly efforts to undermine that privacy through his daughter and through others who tried to, uh, of course, run across him, uh, efforts through his biographers. But by and large, the striking thing is, is, it seems to me that the degree to which he was able to sustain that um, autonomous um, life, immunized against all the things that would have been um, diverting and all the things that would have been enticing, that, it seems to me, um, is more likely, from what I remember reading about the in the obituary notices, than what you were suggesting. Maybe even a kind of resentment.
1: Yeah, I didn't feel a resentment yeah, either. Well, I was a little surprised by by the lack of it. Just I would have felt from some quarters you would get mm-hmm. a little bit of a grudging response. But it's, I think it is a testimony to the uh, regard in which those books are held. Mm-hmm. Um, now we'll talk about Catcher, but because that's mm-hmm. what your article was yes. about. But what about the other books, the stories that Fran and Franny and Zooey?
0: Uh, well, certainly, I think the nine stories from everything that I have read in terms of literary criticism and literary history are going to survive. Yeah. Um, they are amazing achievements in terms of the delicacy, the um, tiny, tiny little calibrations that he's able to achieve. I don't have any sense of Franny and Zooey or of uh, Ray High the Roof Ray Ray's High the Roofbeams carpenters and Seymour in introduction having that kind of survival value. I think. You know the standard literary term there would be precious, and they're a little bit too precious to survive in an, in a more of a long let it all hang out kind of culture that we now inhabit. But can I go back just one second with Pynchon? Um, it seems to me that the curse that in, afflicted Salinger that suggests that there might have been a, a backlash is that um, anybody who cared about it knew where he lived, had a rough idea from the back cover of the first, what was the first three editions of The Catcher in the Rye, what J.D. Salinger looked like in 1951. And therefore, there was at least the possibility of the invasion of privacy. Pynchon, who I believe has not been photographed since, what, a high school yearbook. He was not photographed for his Cornell yearbook. has managed, in a sense, to elude uh, any of the possibilities of resentment that you suggested, even as he's kept publishing. And... That is both his um, elusive achievement in the sense that nobody bothers to demand of him what clearly, um, without quite the same degree of foresight, Salinger had to live through in terms of the demands placed upon him to please show
1: up. Yeah, yeah it's interesting about Pynchon. I do think that in his case, there are people who could make it their business to find out where he is who don't. Mm-hmm. As I think actually the press has been rather careful about yes. respecting his... Yes. Privacy. Um, yeah. Now, may
0: I ask you what you think of the the last two books?
1: Uh, well, I'm of the school the school of narrow-minded people who feel that Franny is a great story ruined by Zooey. Um, <laughs> that, that is, I think Franny is a story in the in the same spirit of the Nine Stories, which I agree with you are classic in the short story uh, tradition um, and hugely influential for other story writers after after Salinger. Um, and I think Franny is one of those stories. Zooey, I loved it when I was 15 or whenever <laughs> I read it. Um, but when I reread it, I did find it precious. Um, and I, um, I, I think Raise High the Root, Pink is a great story, and Seymour's Introduction is also rather precious and indulgent. So I'm, I'm one of those uh, people who take the view that he was uh, going a little bit off track in the latest, latest, the last stuff that he did, in his infatuation with the Glass family and with Seymour in particular, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow that seems mixed up with his desire to withdraw yes. from the world. Um, yes. But I, I would say second to none in my admiration for the for the works that we've been talking about. Yes. Look, I
0: just wanted to pick up, if if I may, on one uh, one point that you made in terms of when you read Salinger, um, which has to do with, um, in a sense, the its enduring value. And that is, um, is he really a writer for teenagers whom adults or parents or teachers think should be read by teenagers? Or is there something else here in which he remains, as in the nine stories, um, has to be considered both an adult writer and a remarkable um, writer for, for sensitive kids?
1: I think Salinger is a writer's writer. So I think that... Um, he represents for a lot of people certainly a lot of writers I know, that is non academics who are professional writers, mm-hmm. a certain kind of ideal um, of craft. And I think that you know, that's an adult thing. I don't think kids too much worry about the craft of perfect day for banana fish. They're just trying to figure out what the hell's going on in that story. Um, but it's it's a remarkable piece of craftsmanship and I think the craft, the voice that he's able to create and capture, and so forth, is something that will always probably be admired by writers. What's I was actually going to ask you this question, which is interesting that it's interesting that the lost weekend of a prep school dropout whose parents live on Fifth Avenue seems to have close to universal appeal uh, to people who didn't go to prep school and whose parents don't live on Fifth Avenue, and that is a kind of odd thing. So one answer your question suggests. Uh, is that The Catcher in the Rye is one of these cases of the rich get richer. That is, having once established itself as the book that teenagers read, it is now given to teenagers as a book that they read, and therefore it gets read by teenagers. When they grow up, they give it to their teenage children to read because they were given it by their parents to read when they were teenagers. Um, and that it has a kind of self-perpetuating quality to it within the culture. I'm not sure if that explains everything about it, but it certainly it has the status of a book that you want your... Teenager to read. Um, why we want our teenagers to read it isn't entirely clear because we certainly don't want them to drop out of school, solicit a prostitute, <laughs> get drunk, use the word goddamn in every yes. other sentence, and so forth. But my thought about it is that it has something to do with wanting your kids to know that there's still a kid in you. That is, that somehow you're telling them it's okay to be this way because. Uh, you know, I was like this too when I was your age. So it has a little bit of a handing on, a generational thing to it. Um,
0: yeah. But, but, the, but it seems to me the problem is uh, to, to give it to a teenager doesn't mean that he or she's going to read it. Yeah. There's still the ar- artistic mystery or maybe the psychic mystery that um, this is one of those books, uh, like all sorts of movies, that don't have to be sold or even pre-sold. That's still, as as you were suggesting a few minutes ago, that may relate to the author's exceptional craft and exceptional capacity to to, to provide a voice that is indelible. So it's still, still, ultimately, it seems to me about art and not about hands off from one generation to the next. Um, And the other striking thing, of course, that's also the, the Disney phenomenon, obviously, with younger children. And yet we outgrow Disney.
1: Um, in all sorts of ways. But we don't seem to outgrow Salinger. Yeah, it still seems to be chugging along. Another way to think about it is that the book gets constantly rewritten. So The Bell Jar was a rewritten version of it. I think Bright Light's Big City was a kind of rewriting of it. I think Heartbreaking Worker's Staggering Genius was a kind of rewriting of it. So that every generation has its own version of the alienated um, adolescent uh, who speaks in this wonderful voice that, other adolescents mm-hmm. respond to, um, and it attracts really talented writers like Eggers and Blath and McInerney, Um so that somehow yeah. Salinger is always at the back of all these stories. They're all trying to do that story mm-hmm. over again, and that is part of what gives it its momentum. Possibly, is, what that, it, is it all? Excuse me. Is it also
0: yeah. a, an antecedent in? Um, Fitzgerald's This Side of Paradise. I mean how far back would you yeah. go pre salinger yeah. to the voice of disaffected youth with well, some you, kind of resentment I think against the you, I adult think world.
1: You might have put this th- this way in your article. Uh, it all goes back to a book by Mr. Mark Twain called The Inventions of Huckleberry yeah. Finn. But yeah. they
0: but the, those parents didn't get it. No, they didn't. That's the right. difference. Yeah. And yeah. it's probably the emergence of a youth culture. Youth which culture didn't exist it, in the late It's a post
1: war thing, yeah. As you know, teenager was really a forties yeah. word and yeah. So youth culture needed uh, products. Uh, I mean, to put that cynically, but there was an audience there which had built into it an idea of a state of being called youth, young person, teenager, um, and it spoke directly to that. One thing you say in your article is, uh, I think I'm quoting, The Catcher in the Rye is utterly apolitical. Uh, And you're responding... (laughs) When you say that, you're responding to efforts to appropriate it to kind of the new left or counterculture, 60s Mm -hmm. radicalism. And you give some examples of people like Tom Hayden who cite Catcher in the Rye as kind of an influence. Um, Although you uh, cite also 60s writers who don't mention Catcher in the Rye. Mm -hmm. Um, But certainly there was a sense that Holden Caulfield was a kind of... um, uh, uh, premonitory version of the student radical or the dropout or the countercultural type of the 60s, and you are quite dismissive of that. Um, So I want to ask you two questions about that. One is that one thing that was striking to me about the obituaries and the general response to Salinger's death was that everybody seemed to pay a lot of attention to the degree to which he was a 40s person. Do you want to talk a little bit about the way the 40s shaped the sensibility of the catcher and the rights
0: <laughs> yeah it's a tough one Luke because you're also asking me to talk about the 60s yeah uh, within the same framework let me try to pick up the 60s part of it and why I believe um, the remark that you quoted is is defensible um, and that is it seems to me politics is ultimately about um, mobilization and enlistment of others it's hard to imagine. A politics that is solitary and that is fundamentally subjective. And as long as that definition is at least um, credible, then it seems to me everything in the um, psychic and emotional thrust of The Catcher in the Rye is against politics and toward um, the cultivation of the interior life. And the fact that the narrator... Um, imagines, for example, wanting to be a deaf mute so that nobody will talk to him or he doesn't have to talk to anybody, that is the opposite of the conversation we're having, suggests to me that that that's an utterly apolitical book. The only element, and of course the other feature about the 60s, is that um, the counterculture was apolitical to a certain extent and the extension of the beats, the hippies, into the hippies that were believing that basically no political solution was available. Um, but it, it, the, the element where it is perhaps overstated in terms of the apolitical quality, and I don't know if this is what you were perhaps referring to, is that the 40s also produces the bomb, and the 40s produces something that was utterly unprecedented, so that when Holden Caulfield imagines that if there's another war, um, that he will, um, uh, sit astride the atomic bomb when it goes down, just the, just the way, um, Cap is it major King Kong right. goes down at the end of Doctor Strangelove, 1964, yeah. um, is a kind of eerie premonition now of something that could at least be a hostility to a world in which politics doesn't provide um, any of the conventional solutions because atomic warfare is is utterly insoluble, and even deterrence has its has its extraordinary fears and anxieties. To that extent, in the sense that the 40s. Um, gave us uh, an atomic age that nobody, no child, no teenager, no parent had ever lived through before might allow for at least a certain kind of political edge. Or maybe, I would prefer maybe to call it an historical edge rather than a political one. But of course, the striking thing in that sense between the conventional 50s and the conventional 60s is the conventional 50s has no way of imagining concert with others. And the '60s is all about um, we must march, my darlings.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: and that's why it seems to me the effort to um, uh, to incorporate the catcher in the rye for all of its disaffection seems to me doomed.
1: And would you put on the road in the same category yes. for the same reasons? Yes. Yeah.
0: Even though there, it's male camaraderie, and even though. Um, they're not particularly introspective, and they're not particularly wanting to be by themselves. But it's it's a social world. It's not a world that imagines doing anything in any direction toward toward uh, change or any change uh, or any alteration of the public realm. Yeah.
1: So you couldn't really extract a politics out of a book like that. I
0: don't think so. Yeah. And again, the striking thing, if I can just elaborate on on the point you made about the forties, the other amazing thing um, is that. Um, J.D. Salinger is a product of some of the worst fighting in Europe from Utah Beach uh, five five hours after the first landing all the way through the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, uh, Somebody who knew war intimately. And yet, even though there are the traumatic and psychic scars of war, there is no um, larger sense of maybe we want to imagine a world in which the dangers of war are in any way reduced Maybe I've come out of this experience wanting to do something. I mean, no American Veterans Committee, no civil rights legislation, no double D for victory. Now we've got to do something about achieving democracy at home. It seems to me there's none of that. And that's kind of, in the solipsism of Salinger's art, is a remarkable, uh, call it purity. Yeah. Call it apolitical
1: purity, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. No, he wanted to be a writer. Yeah, feels that, yeah.
0: <laughs> But there are different kinds of writers, and uh, you have to wait till the Tom Haydens emerged, yeah. not, not that he's a writer as such.
1: Joseph Heller, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah.
0: Although Heller also has a kind of 50s repudiation at the end.
1: Yeah, but it's the anti-war book, yes. I would say. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk more generally about the Cold War period, because you're the author of uh, one of the seminal studies of Cold War culture, um, and that was back in the 90s. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. and uh, the second edition was 96 of your Mm -hmm. book. So looking back on the last uh, 15 years, 14 or 15 years, do you see changes in the scholarship uh, of the Cold War Mm -hmm. period that uh, might change the way you would have approached your subject when you were writing about it back Um, in the early 90s? Yeah, if,
0: if if we can find... The subject to, let's say, the impact of geopolitics on American domestic life, culture, civil liberties, and so on, as opposed to um, the way in which the Soviet archives have been opened, so that we now see something more about, for example, how dangerous the world actually was during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Or if we see, you know, now we know exactly how difficult it was for. Kim Il-sung to get Stalin to agree to invade South Korea. If we're not talking about that, I will sound horrifically dogmatic and stubborn, but I don't see any um, any major difference. The problem still remains that we did something to ourselves that we didn't need to do in terms of the violation of democratic norms. We did something to ourselves we didn't need to do in terms of politicizing areas of culture, Salinger being the most striking exception, perhaps. We politicized things that didn't need to be politicized in terms of the arts, uh, to say nothing about the damages to people's careers. And I don't think that there has been any particular scholarship or any particular new research that has altered the general sense of something that um, needs to be revised. The only area that I can think of in which we seem to know more than uh, when I was working on, on the culture of the Cold War is we now know how extraordinarily effective the FBI was in infiltrating the Communist Party so that by the rampage of Joe McCarthy beginning February 1950, the Communist Party had already basically been, if not destroyed, it had been so enfeebled that the notion that the communists might be capable of committing espionage within the American government, or might have been engaged in something that was seriously a threat to national security, that was already that had already vanished. So McCarthyism looks even less um, plausible. It was never justified, but it was certainly you could you could make a case because of figures like Alger Hiss. Now it seems to me that case has, has evaporated.
1: Yeah, and you do, but you do sound that theme in your book mm-hmm. already, that there was mm-hmm. an exaggerated fear yes. that the FBI was remarkably effective at in infiltrating <coughs> these organizations. Um, it's a, you have to do a balancing act because you're, uh, on the one hand, you're yourself quite hard on communism, as we used mm-hmm. to say. <laughs> um, uh, so it's not as though you think that there, sure. that there was something about communism that, most American liberals were getting wrong. Right. At the same time, you feel that the that the internal threat was, was absurdly exaggerated mm-hmm. yes. and that it did lead to, uh, as we say, imitating our enemy um, in the way yeah. we approach culture. One thing that has been written about quite a bit, and it wouldn't change your thesis at all, you're quite right, I think, um, has been the subject of some recent books is the role that the CIA played in both the export of American culture mm-hmm. yes. uh, and also the covert... Subvention of mm-hmm. American cultural enterprises uh, mm-hmm. domestically, which, of course, is contrary mm-hmm. to the CIA's charter. Yes. Is there anything in that scholarship that strikes you as, as mm-hmm. fresh or changing the <laughs> picture at all?
0: Broadly speaking, I would say no. Um, I think it's an open question, and on, he, on this point, I'm not sure my mind is thoroughly made up that in the early 1950s, when we know that the uh, cultural Cold War in Europe, in Asia, um, in Latin America in particular, entailed one side having tremendous government resources and the other side, namely us, having relatively few, um, in which the proverbial battle for hearts and minds looked a little bit one-sided... Um when we don't know the, we don't know the result, we don't know the ending. It seems to me that there's a modest case, a moderate case to be made for government support. Um, I don't think my mind would be in fa- uh, that my mind would be altered in the sense that that's still inherently bad for culture. It's ultimately, of course bad for government. But um, in that area, I would say there's at least a little bit of, of wiggle room for a judgment call in the early 1950s um, when it looked as though there might be the danger of a genuine explosion over Berlin, uh, there might be a, a genuine kind of conflict, uh, and before the full resources of American soft power w- seemed to be fully um, you know, engaged in the effectiveness that they did engage in. It seems to me there there's an element in which um, one might make a different judgment than simply this was a terrible idea.
1: Yeah, I'm, I, I mean, for what it's worth, yes. I I think that I think I agree generally with that view. That is, um, I think two things about it. One is that it is seems to be um, documented and true that the CIA was engaged in covert enterprises to prop up and support. Oh, yes, that's there, Guatemala right. and Iran. Right, sure. but also uh, culturally, that is Encounter Magazine or yes. Partisan Review or places like, things like that. Um, but it also seems to be the case that um, the editors of those magazines uh, and the directors of the Museum of Modern Art and so forth were also on the same page. In other yes. words, right, they were all anti-communists in pretty much uh-huh. the same spirit. Yes, um, yes. Yeah. So it's not, the covertness had more more to do with having to do an end run around Congress probably than with trying to uh, undermine uh, anybody else's wishes. Um, and I also think better Jackson Pollock than guns. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. If that's but, a choice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but it does run into the contradiction that you write about in your book, which is that if the purpose of cultural propaganda is to advertise a country in which the state is not, Involved with the arts, then you have right a blatant contradiction facing you. Yes. Um, so it does get very it does get very complicated. Yes. I also
0: should say, for the record, on this podcast, that the um, political interventions, the coups that took place in Guatemala and Iran, were utterly disastrous. Yeah, uh, there, there. It seems to me there's no real ground for a serious disagreement. Uh, the consequences were catastrophic.
1: Yeah. No, I'm, I agree with that. I'm thinking of the, I'm thinking of the element of uh, Cold War. Yes, of culture. You know, history having to yes. do with culture and how yes. it was supported and how it was promoted. Yeah. Um, so what are you working on now?
0: Well, I wanted to ask you this, actually, because what I'm really interested in cannot find, figure out a way of resolving the problem, and I'm very eager to your um, elucidation, has to do with how the 50s became the 60s. At the end of the 50s, nobody imagined how tumultuous a decade that would be. Nobody imagined the extent of the alienation of which Holman-Coldfield was a very modest instance when that book was published in 51, and I don't have an answer. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on the subject, because um, not only was it not imaginable, but it's difficult to find um, buried in the 50s. Um, beyond a few small instances, what would erupt in the 60s? So I I, I want to turn the question over to you. Yeah,
1: well, if I could answer that question, (laughs) we we would sell out the podcast. Uh, Yeah. It's one of the great mysteries of post-war history, I think, uh, trying to generalize that. Um, Partly has to do with, um, we are free of this, thank goodness, but stereotype views of both the 50s and the 60s, which tend to get in the way of figuring out what the transitions and continuities are. Um, It partly has to do with uh, I think still people, certainly people of our generation, are a little over-invested in those stereotypes somewhat, um, defensive of their particular view of the 60s. I think that can all get in the way. But um, putting that aside, it is a difficult problem to solve. I I tend to think that uh, two things, uh, which don't go all the way to explaining very much, but one is that Um, the 50s was really an anomaly in American life in a lot of respects. That is, if you compare the 50s to the 40s or the 30s in terms of gender politics, in terms of demographics, in terms of um, the uh, ways in which academic disciplines uh, conceived of themselves and so forth, the 50s are quite unusual. Um, So there's a tendency among conservatives in uh, conservative intellectuals in American life to imagine that the 50s were sort of the norm. I tend to think that's simply not true. The 60s were a lot like the 30s. Um, uh, they really weren't at all like the 50s, but the 50s were quite different from the way American uh, social history had been before that. So to that extent, uh, one could think of the 60s as a kind of um, release of a lot of energies that had been channeled into directions that were um, kind of at odds with the normal dynamics of American society. That's a little Hegelian and probably a little (laughs) metaphysical. Um, A more materialistic account, perhaps, would have to do something with um, the rise of the information economy and the enormous expansion of American higher education after the National Defense Education Act, the baby boom, um, and that, that created a class of people, academics and college students, who were much larger than that class of people had been before in American life. Um, they were confronted with an event which basically broke the mold of all of containment doctrine thinking, Cold War thinking, anti-communist thinking, and American policy thinking, which was Vietnam. And that that American that whole mindset of the Cold War period broke its head on that problem. It really split liberalism in two. Uh, it exposed the complicity of American uh, institutions of higher learning with um, national policy, national security, with the Defense Department, um, and it, it it did it did produce a kind of um, sense that you could constantly keep peeling away the layers of American life, and you could find underneath it um, this horrible sense of complicity in some kind of operation that was unstoppable. And we both lived through that period, and it really was as though every day, everything one confronted yes. somehow had something to do with the question of Vietnam and what we were doing there. So that seems always seemed to me to have more to do with it than anything else. But that that there were certain classes of people in place because of the expansion of higher education, because of the general raising of living standards in the United States in the 50s and early 60s that gave them a particular perspective on American foreign policy that wouldn't have been possible in the 40s might have something to do with why Vietnam was the explosive mm-hmm. issue that it was.
0: Does that, would that explain then why when Vietnam basically comes to an end as an issue in American politics as, it, as the war comes to an end, why the 60s doesn't get In other words, if the 60s, you're saying, is actually closer to the norm, one would expect the 60s to continue.
1: Yeah. Well, I think the 60s. It's
0: effectively challenged politically.
1: The 60s continue in the sense that we are still a highly um, uh, conflicted uh, society politically. That is, the the culture wars are a way of continuing the 60s, I think. I do agree, though, that really what ended the 60s was the end of the draft, really, in 1970. Um, and that somehow just seemed to unhook, to pull the plug out of a lot of the youth ferment that had characterized the 60s before that and a lot of the anti-war sentiment. Um, so the war wasn't over until 75, but really yeah. it had sort of faded from the domestic scene before that. Um, I have one more question, if we have time. What do you think of the New England Quarterly? <laughs>
0: wonderful journal since 1928 and what I what I like about it has to do with both the um, uh, the elegance of the uh, of the journal itself that is the typeset it has an element of both seriousness and readability um, and even though there are many articles in there that are beyond my competence to judge, there are many articles in there that do not address issues that I happen to be concerned with, especially the further back you go into the American past. They are highly readable. They're well edited. They're literate. Um, generally speaking, free of the jargon that disfigures so much of, uh, of scholarship. Great. I'm very That's pleased to be associated with it. Me too. Good. Okay.
1: Thank you. For more
0: information about this article, the New England Quarterly, or any of our publications, please visit our website at mitpressjournals.org.